And we welcome you to the Wednesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Today's program features an interview from the Morning Show archives with someone who was a frequent and much appreciated guest on the Morning Show, including back in the days when this program was hosted by Bill Guy. His name, Professor Don Cummings, who was for 36 years a professor of English at the University of Wisconsin Parkside and one of the nation's most renowned experts on the great Walt Whitman. Just a little information about Professor Cummings before we hear this interview that was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2006. Don Cummings was born in 1940 in Lafayette, Indiana, and went to Purdue University to earn a Bachelor of Arts in Creative Writing as well as a Master's in English. Uh, He ultimately uh, earned his Ph.D. in English and American Studies from Indiana University. His teaching career actually began as a teaching assistant at his alma mater, Purdue University, and he taught at a couple of other colleges before beginning his 36-year term at the University of Wisconsin-Parkside in 1970. Professor Cummings won a number of teaching awards during his time as Parkside, the most significant of which came in 1997 when he was named Wisconsin Professor of the Year by the Carnegie Foundation. He is also fondly remembered as a co-founder, along with Norm Coultier, of Parkside's highly regarded foreign film series, which is still going strong after all these years. Professor Cummings wrote four books about his favorite poet, Walt Whitman. The first, Walt Whitman, 1940-1975, A Reference Guide. The second, uh, Approaches to Teaching Whitman's Leaves of Grass. The third, Walt Whitman, an encyclopedia, for which Professor Cummings served as co-editor. And finally, the book which is discussed in today's interview, A Companion to Walt Whitman. Professor Cummings not only studied and taught about the poetry of others, but was also a gifted poet himself. And if you would uh, like to explore his poetry, you should seek out a lovely book called The Open Road Trip, in which Professor Cummings published 20 of his own poems uh, that explored in various ways his experiences as a world traveler, uh, often with his second wife, Patricia, at his side. Here, then, is what turns out to be uh, the final interview I did with Professor Cummings on the morning show. And uh, this was done in 2006, not long before he retired from UW Parkside as one of the most beloved members of their faculty. Enjoy. I'm very pleased and honored uh, for the next few minutes to be uh, sitting opposite uh, a longtime professor of English at the University of Wisconsin Parkside, Don Cummings, who has also been, uh, over the years, uh, a, a repeated guest on the morning show and certainly spoke with WGTD's Bill Guy on a- any number of occasions. He joins me today on the program to talk about what I am assuming is his most recent book. I'm pretty certain about that. It is called A Companion to Walt Whitman, uh, and it is from uh, Blackwell Publishing out of Oxford, England, and uh, it. Uh, helps us understand the uh, importance and great influence of uh, Walt Whitman, one of the most uh, important figures of the 19th century, and uh, someone whose uh, work 
has had uh, great resonance uh, long after his death in uh, 1892. Uh, Professor Cummings, we welcome you back to the morning show. Thank you very much. Really glad to have you here. Um, I have a feeling that a substantial book like this is the kind of labor of love that uh, is not born uh, overnight. Uh, just how long and deep and broad a, a project is is a book like this? Well, this this book actually took me uh, a little less time than I thought it might. I uh, I believe from the time that I began my first uh, uh, activity toward uh, producing the book until it came out in print, it was about three years. Hmm. Um, the book before this one, the uh, Walt Whitman Encyclopedia, took four four years and three months or something of that uh, sort. So this one, um, almost as long as the encyclopedia, uh, took took less time for some reason. I'm not sure why, but uh, maybe everything just fell into place pretty much. Uh. Well, you've certainly been uh, living with uh, Mr. Whitman's poetry for a long time. When did you first uh, find your, your interest ignited? Uh, when and why and how? Well, that's... Uh, that's a tough question for me to answer. I began with an interest in American poetry, and I began with an interest in writing my own poetry. And uh, somehow in pursuing those two interests, I kept stumbling upon uh, Whitman. If you combine that uh, circumstance with the fact that I took a seminar in uh, graduate school at Indiana University devoted entirely to Whitman, and then eventually wrote a doctoral dissertation that involved writing two chapters on Whitman. It seems that uh, I just kept coming across his work all of the time and uh, getting further and further uh, into it. I don't know when uh, I decided, uh, you know, that Whitman was sort of my area, my subject. What I recall at Parkside, when I came to Parkside in the early uh, 1970s, there was a guy uh, in the English department there by the name of Ronald Gottesman. He was one of the editors of the Norton Anthology of American uh, Literature. He was also a guy who was a field editor for a series of books published by G.K. Hall in Boston. He asked me one day if I would be interested in uh, uh, doing a book for him in the series that he was editing. And I said, well, yeah, I might be. Let me think about it. So I remember talking to him maybe a week after he posed this question to him, and I went in uh, and suggested that I'd be willing to do a book for him on uh, the poet William Carlos Williams. He said uh, something to the effect, uh, damn it, Don, I just sent out the contract on William Carlos Williams, so you're going to have to select somebody else. Hmm. So I remember going home and re rethinking this, and looking at, you know, uh, what I had done over the past five or six years, and uh, I realized that I had done the most work on Whitman. So I said, what about uh, taking on uh, Walt Whitman as one of the uh, topics for a book? Well, it turned out that he, he was, uh, Ron Gottesman was doing or editing 20th century authors, and the 19th century author, uh, field editor rather, was a guy by the name of Herschel Parker out at the University of Southern California. So Gottesman put me in touch with Herschel Parker. I got the contract to do the book on Walt Whitman. And, you know, once I had a book on Whitman, then that led to a second book on, on Whitman and a, a third. And now this, uh, uh, a companion to Whitman, is the fourth book I've done on uh, Whitman.
So you didn't just go from Williams to Whitman because it was con uh, contiguous in the alphabetical listings of great poets. Huh? No, I didn't do that. Uh, <laughs> Good. I, but I didn't begin exactly, you know, with great uh, enthusiasm for Whitman. I, I, I liked him well enough. I mean, I uh, uh, sensed even then that he was certainly, if not the greatest American poet, he was among the greatest American uh, poets. Uh, you know, I, I liked him well enough to get involved in, uh, you know, a big project uh, on him. I would guess that uh, from the time that I first began serious work on Whitman until now, uh, I'm sure my view of Whitman, my understanding of him, has uh, grown immeasurably. Hmm. Uh, I'm sure I have a far different sense of him now than I did at the beginning. Help us understand, and, and I'm asking this as someone who really has not studied poetry very much over the years, for mm -hmm. whatever reason. So I think for me, and, and probably for a number of our listeners, it's really hard for us to understand um, what, a, what a, a poetry scholar does with someone like Walt Whitman. I mean, mm -hmm. such a well-known figure, already so studied, uh, so thoroughly examined. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in a sense, I guess I'm asking, what, it, what is the untrod ground that remains to, to explore, or, or isn't it that? I mean, is it possible to go back to to uh, poems that have been examined many, 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 many times over and, and find something new to say about them? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, in some respects, yes, uh, Whitman has been uh, uh, well investigated, uh, much written upon, probably as much written upon as any, any poet in American uh, literature. But he's been around long enough now to have uh, undergone various... Uh, uh, epochs, I guess, or eras of interpretation. I mean, uh, the view of Whitman in 1920 or 1930 or 1940 or 1960, these uh, different views uh, tell us uh, a, a lot about how our interpretations of authors uh, change and evolve over time. I mean, in the 1930, Whitman was uh, much liked uh, by the uh, the radical political poets of that era and thought to be a person who spoke for the uh, working poor and the oppressed uh, masses and so on and so forth. Uh, in, in the 1940s during World War II, Whitman, Whitman was uh, perceived pretty much as a patriotic poet. It's hard for us to believe, perhaps, but uh, some of his work was uh, selected and put into little pocket anthologies and carried by uh, American troops during World War uh, too. Hmm. In the 1960s, Whitman was perceived uh, uh, essentially as a kind of a latter, uh, a, a, an early or a precursor, I guess you could say, of the uh, of the beatnik poets and the bohemian poets of the uh, 1960s. You know, uh, Leaves of Grass was even associated with uh, uh, marijuana and grass, I, I suppose, in the 1960s. In, in more recent uh, days, uh, Whitman has been... Uh, touted by uh, quite a few people in the, in the field of study, uh, American uh, literary study, as a, a great gay poet and the first to articulate a kind of gay sensibility. And, uh, so, you know, things are, are always changing uh, in, in the study of uh, Whitman and uh, new views of his work are coming along. And, uh, you know, so in a sense, uh, he... You know, he, he's, he's not exhaustible in, hmm. in, in many ways, it seems to me. I guess part of it, then, is you're not just studying Walt Whitman, the man, and his poetry, 
but you are studying the way in which his poetry and the poetry of others for that matter have been received and understood and discussed over the years and i suppose and we haven't even touched on how he has influenced other great poets in his wake well he's he's influenced the uh, a great many uh, poets, uh, w without question. Not everyone, uh, of course, has uh, liked uh, Whitman. I mean, uh, some fairly big names in the 20th century, notably uh, T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound, did not particularly uh, like uh, Whitman. But then they, they didn't particularly like, uh, uh, you know, democratic uh, ideology, you know, which uh, Whitman uh, uh, represents. So, I mean, that's not uh, that surprising. But, um, you know, what... Uh, uh, what I've discovered over the years in, in, in reading Whitman, I, I found out so much more about 19th century America than I ever knew because he absorbed and uh, uh, transformed in his poetry the goings-on of 19th century America. It's, it's fascinating to me to discover in his uh, work, oh, for instance, his interest in uh, uh, phrenology, you know, the, uh, the uh, pseudoscience uh, uh, that uh, <clears throat> involved uh, people uh, examining your skull and the uh, protuberances on your uh, head and uh, making assessments of your personality based on, how, on the shape of your head. It seems very unlikely that a great uh, world-class poet might be interested in such uh, stuff, but, but he was. And indeed, there are many references in uh, Leaves of Grass to this kind of uh, thing. Or... Another, another interesting aspect to me of um, Whitman's uh, work, I know that you've had a lot of uh, uh, <clears throat> involvement with, uh, with music. Well, Whitman was a, a great lover of music. He was especially fond of, uh, uh, at first at least, of uh, Native American uh, music. He liked uh, uh, sentimental singers like the Cheney family or the... Uh, the Hutchinson family, both New England singing family groups. He liked sentimental ballads. He liked the music of Stephen Foster and so on and so forth. Initially, he did not like uh, opera. In fact, he has a statement or two in which he um, complained about uh, things like uh, ear-piercing shrieks and uh, gurgling and death <laughs> rattles and whatnot. And uh, he thought this kind of music was unsuitable to an uh, emerging democratic uh, country and so on. But something somehow happened to uh, Whitman and he became one of the great lovers of uh, opera, especially uh, Italian opera. He, he, he loved uh, Bellini and uh, Donizetti and uh, Verdi. And, uh, uh, and of course he was at a bit of an advantage because he lived much of his life there in uh, New York City and New York City probably attracted uh, almost all of the great uh, singers and opera companies of that uh, uh, era. So he he saw firsthand, you know, all of the major players uh, of the day. And uh, he even went so far as to say at one point that had it not been for Grand Opera, he could not have written uh, Leaves of Grass. Hmm. Well, this kind of stuff, you know, uh, about phrenology and the music of that era and, uh, you know, various other things, the visual, the emerging uh, visual culture of the era. Uh, you know, Whitman's uh, career almost coincides with the emergence of uh, photography. And he was very much interested in photography, and he also ended up being 
probably one of the most photographed people of his century. And, uh, you know, he, he studied photography a, a, a little bit and, re and reflected on its uh, meanings. Indeed saw it as a kind of democratic uh, medium, you know, it didn't uh, discriminate, it, uh, it brought everything into the uh, picture and so on. And, uh, but, you know, I guess what I'm uh, suggesting is that as I've uh, got more and more into Whitman over the years, I've found out more and more about uh, the United States and, you know, how it, uh, how it evolved and developed and uh, how our own century uh, connects with some of the hmm. things uh, back in that uh, era. So to study Walt Whitman is to uh, very much study his time. And I suppose that's not always true or not always true to that same extent. I mean, you think of a figure maybe like Emily Dickinson, mm -hmm. who lived in at least to some extent kind of a cloistered experience. Right. To study her life is not to engage with her time and place in quite the same way. No, I don't think it is. Uh, you know, there have been a few critics of Emily Dickinson who have said, well, she was she was immersed in her era as well. Uh, she was immersed in this sense, I think. You know, to study her work is to understand uh, New England or Massachusetts culture of the 19th century a little bit. But she certainly doesn't have the... Uh, have the national uh, sweep that Whitman did, and she she really has very little to say, for instance, about the Civil War or huge events that went on in that uh, time as well. So she's not the figure I would turn to, you know, for for a look at the culture of the day. But, uh, Whitman engages all of that more Well, more he directly. tried, yeah, he, he certainly did. Mm. Uh, for those of you just joining us, we're speaking with uh, Don Cummings, professor of uh, English at the University of Wisconsin Parkside, and we're talking about the poet Walt Whitman. Professor Cummings has just produced a magnificent new book called A Companion to Walt Whitman. Um, we have talked a bit about uh, when he lived. He, he was born in 1819. He dies in 1892. So that's an intriguing lifespan, which uh, includes a, a lot of the most important uh, events of growth for our, our country. Um, I understand that he had a very personal sort of encounter uh, in the Civil War, which was really a, a life-changing event uh, for him. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that and, and the ongoing influence for him. Well, uh, he did not uh, enlist in the Civil War or fight in the Civil War. In fact, when the Civil War broke out, Whitman was, I think, about 41 years of age. However, he, he did have a younger brother by the name of George who did enlist in the Civil War and uh, went off and uh, not long into the uh, uh, war was listed in the uh, newspapers in New York City as having been uh, wounded in battle. The newspaper did not give any indication of uh, uh, the severity of the uh, wound. Uh, however, it did uh, give enough information so that Whitman decided to travel to the Washington, D.C. area and to the uh, countryside of Virginia to try to locate his uh, brother, George, and to find out what he could do to help. So he left, uh, he left uh, New York City, uh, went to Washington, and then uh, found his way uh, to one of the uh, encampments in Virginia, located his brother, discovered that uh, his brother was not seriously wounded. He had been shot through the cheek, but it turned out to be a relatively minor wound. In any case, 
even that brief experience on the Civil War battlefields, also his experience uh, in seeing all of the uh, makeshift hospitals that had been set up there in Washington, D.C., had a profound experience, uh, a profound influence on Whitman. Uh, he decided that he would stay on and see what he could contribute uh, to, the, uh, to the needs of the uh, soldiers. Uh, <clears throat> you know, for instance, one of the things that he saw when he went out into Virginia was an army tent, a hospital tent, where surgeries were performed. Outside this tent was a rather large pile of human limbs uh, that had been uh, amputated from soldiers. I gather that uh, the state of medicine during the Civil War was uh, certainly primitive. The state of anesthesia, as far as I know, was, uh, uh, you know, also primitive. Uh, as far as I can tell, amputation was often the first rather than the last uh, resort. Also, uh, soldiers uh, in the Civil War, both North and South, I guess, were were so young uh, uh, and young-looking to Whitman that, uh, you know, initially he had been a an ardent uh, supporter of the Northern uh, cause, but once seeing the suffering that occurred for these soldiers, both North and South, he decided to stay on in Washington, D.C., find himself some employment, which he did uh, by working in several government offices, and he went to, the, to these hospitals and ministered to the soldiers for two or three years. What he did, evidently, was to come and simply sit with them, read to them, uh, bring them little gifts of uh, candy or tobacco, write letters for them. Uh, evidently, he even assisted occasionally uh, in a minor way in some of the surgeries that were uh, performed. But he became, in, in effect, a, a volunteer uh, nurse. Mm -hmm. And uh, often, if uh, these uh, soldiers uh, died, he would be the one who ended up writing to the parents, uh, telling the parents uh, how their son uh, uh, died, how his last moments were, and uh, tried to provide whatever consolation he could. So there was, um, there was something uh, very self-sacrificing about this uh, effort on uh, Whitman's uh, part. You know, later he's going to be accused uh, by a, a guy by the name of uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, a prominent uh, editor and critic of the day. Whitman was accused of uh, not fighting in the war. He he was uh, still young enough to fight, and uh, why wasn't he, you know, especially since he seems to have had uh, opinions on the war, uh, strong opinions, and so on and so forth. Well, I don't know, at 41 years old, I don't know how much of a soldier, uh, a battlefield uh, soldier you can uh, really, really be. Uh, besides, you know, given what he did do uh, in, in contributing to the... Uh, uh, to the national catastrophe, I think it's an unfair charge that he didn't fight in the war. But hmm. he did not fight in the war. Tell us his sort of political persuasion and the way that he saw the world and, and, and especially the way in which he, he saw his own country. I think, uh, I think initially, you know, when he first began as a 
as an editor for newspapers, and he began writing uh, poetry, and he wrote short fiction for a while. He also uh, wrote any number of editorials for uh, New York City and Brooklyn uh, newspapers. He was quite a political person at the uh, outset, uh, involved in local uh, political uh, elections and the like, and uh, going to political conventions. I think when he began his work on Leaves of Grass and he published that uh, first edition, he was far less openly political in his uh, life. His politics sort of went into the book Leaves of Grass. Uh, what his politics uh, were exactly, uh, I, I think I, I've been reflecting on this uh, recently because I'm writing a little a little encyclopedia entry on uh, Whitman on this uh, topic. He was, in some ways, a, a kind of political moderate, uh, you know, as he uh, developed uh, uh, his, uh, his book of, of poetry there. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you, you tend to think of Whitman as being uh, uh, radical politically, and uh, there are things in Leaves of Grass that, that suggest that. But... Uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't like, for instance, uh, the abolitionists particularly. Uh, and, you know, he had abolitionist uh, friends who were uh, always trying to recruit him to their uh, cause. But he didn't, like, he didn't like political causes that he thought pretended social disorder. He didn't, he didn't like anything that... Uh, that suggested to him that might lead to the dismantling of the Constitution or the violation of the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence or something. Hmm. So, you know, he was sympathetic with with all kinds of different uh, causes. I mean, he had uh, uh, women friends, you know, in the uh, women's uh, 19th century women's movement. He was very sympathetic to their cause, but he never became a, a, a full full-blooded uh, subscriber to the cause. He was, he was recruited by the Free Love uh, uh, Society in the 19th century America, but he never, he never became a subscriber to that cause. Toward the end of his life, he was uh, very close friends with a guy by the name of Horace Traubel, uh, an ardent socialist. Uh, Traubel tried to get Whitman to admit that basically his philosophy was that of socialism, but uh, Whitman refused to do it. He wouldn't he wouldn't commit himself, evidently, to any kind of social uh, position. So, uh, you know, he always thought that these kinds of things were partial in their efforts to reform society. Also, he worried about the potential destructiveness of, of anything that was carried to an extreme. So, Meanwhile, in, in Leaves of Grass, he, he evolved over time, I think, what you would call a radical democratic position. He really strongly, adamantly believed in, in a democratic outlook on, on life. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I think essentially that's his political, his political position. When we look at Walt Whitman's poetry, how directly do we see his his views on, on, on some of what you've just been talking about, or, or is, is it something that we discern more by kind of reading between the lines or behind the words? I think it's more of a reading between the lines or reading, uh, knowing something of the background of uh, 
of his life. Uh, you know, he, he he's not especially doctrinaire, it seems to me. At least when I, when I read his work, you know, it's hard to point to any particular passage and say, well, this was, this was in fact, uh, Walt Whitman's uh, uh, view. In, in fact, one of the interesting things about uh, the book Leaves of Grass and maybe confusing things for people who don't know that much about Whitman is that he speaks in this first-person voice quite often. He even refers to himself in his poetry by name. He calls himself uh, Walt Whitman. But clearly... The, the guy called Walt Whitman in Leaves of Grass is not the same guy known by that name in, in real life in 19th century America. They were two different people. The, the persona created in Leaves of Grass is, is I think, uh, wilder, uh, more flamboyant than the actual Walt Whitman. I think the actual Walt Whitman was a kind of re reclusive guy, kind of retiring in uh, ways, quieter. Mm -hmm. Uh, less uh, less boisterous than the persona of leaves of grass. So, you mentioned the fact that uh, in the 1970s, uh, Walt Whitman became uh, a very important figure and inspiring figure, actually, for uh, the gay liberation movement. Uh, let's talk for a moment about what we know about who Walt Whitman himself was, and. Uh, and then the way in which he mm -hmm. he went on to to be this uh, inspiring figure. Well, <clears throat> this is a this is an interesting uh, uh, topic to me in in some respects because I think my own sense of Whitman has changed in that regard uh, over over the years, and uh, uh, I, I suspect what that indicates is that I myself have changed. I can remember being in, in a, a, this graduate seminar on Whitman at Indiana University in the late 1960s. And we had to write several papers in this seminar. We had to give an oral report in the seminar. We also had to have a little discussion, a little private discussion, as I remember, an interview with the professor of the class. And I remember this instructor asked me in this little interview, uh, I, I can't remember how he phrased the question exactly, but he, he wanted to know what my opinion was of whether or not Whitman was gay. And I remember I said to him basically, well, you know, this seems to me uh, a kind of uh, charge for which there's uh, little evidence, you know. I, I remember taking uh, umbrage to some extent at this uh, at this idea that uh, Whitman might might be gay, you know, I don't. I I hope I didn't uh, say at the time anything particularly homophobic. Uh, I don't think I did, but uh, you know, it, it seemed to me to be uh, at the time a, a negative charge uh, uh, against uh, Whitman. Uh, later, of course, when I become far more involved in the study of Whitman and reading about Whitman and uh, reading the uh, comments uh, made on Whitman by gay critics and so on and so forth, I, I developed a far different view of this whole uh, question. And, <clears throat> you know, here's what I can, here's, here's what I guess I, I think nowadays. If you read Whitman's uh, poetry carefully, I think there's no question whatsoever that uh, he celebrated 
sexuality in uh, all of its uh, forms. Uh, not just uh, heterosexuality or homosexuality, but uh, autoeroticism and bisexuality. I mean, there's just no doubt that the, all of this is in the poetry. You can find it uh, particularly in a group of poems called the Calamus Poems. Uh, you can find uh, his celebrations of sexuality in Children of Adam poems and Song of Myself and, and so on. Hmm. Now, that's one thing. Now, what was Whitman in his actual life? What was his sexual orientation? That's a tougher question. That's a, a different uh, question in many ways. There have been times, I think, when I've been uh, uh, involved in one of these uh, book projects on Whitman, when I've had uh, uh, <clears throat> no doubt that he probably was a, a, a gay person. There have been other times when I felt that he was uh, a bisexual person. There have also been times when I felt that uh, here's a guy who talked a lot about sexuality but may well not have had any sexual experiences uh, in his life. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to, to know about this uh, for certain because there seems to be little evidence one way or another about his, uh, his actual sexual orientation. What I find really interesting in all of this is that uh, he lived in a time when, uh, and even died, in fact, before the term homosexual came into the vocabulary, before the term gay was ever applied to uh, uh, someone of his sensibility. Um, I find that interesting. So, you know, he was perhaps attempting to... Uh, to articulate a gay sensibility before people even had any awareness of, of, of such an outlook or such a, a personality or such a sexual orientation. I find that kind of interesting. Hmm. It's one of the, it's a, yet another topic, you know, that has become much discussed and much debated and has caused uh, reformulations of how we of how we think about this uh, guy. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing in 2006 for let's say a young man or a young woman to maybe realize this about themselves and trying to come to terms with it but at least it's in a world and in a culture where at least it's there's a terminology with which one can talk about it and 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 some sense of 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 who you might go and talk to or how you might right. think of this and express it but it's it's quite another thing to imagine what someone like a Walt Whitman uh was doing and trying to Come, come to terms with this. Well, you know, I think one of the things that has uh, struck me increasingly over the years is how, how this writer managed to find the courage to put sexuality as a topic, as a subject, into his poetry at a time when to make any public utterance, as one of the essayists in the book says, at a time when to make any public utterance about sexuality was to invite uh, criticism and ostracism and the like. And yet Whitman managed to make sexuality a kind of centerpiece of this book, uh, Leaves of Grass. How or why he would do that and had the courage to do that, I don't know, but it's an interesting aspect of, hmm. of his life and work in my view. Hmm. Um, we should take our closing minutes, and I wish there was uh, more time for us to do this. Uh, we should talk uh, a, a bit about what sets his poetry aside as distinctive. Uh, 
What do you most appreciate about Walt Whitman's poetry? Well, I, I guess I've always uh, admired free verse poetry at least as much, if not more, than uh, regular uh, rhyming or metrical uh, poetry. I've also admired in Whitman his uh, attention to uh, detail, his uh, vivid uh, images, um, at least in uh, poems like uh, Song of Myself. You know, his, uh, his attention to detail and particularity uh, seemed to me to have uh, uh, provided a course or a direction for American poetry that is uh, even more prominent in the 20th century. You know, when you get into the 20th century, a lot of, a lot of people uh, looked back to Whitman and found, found him uh, quite influential in, in, in the style of poetry. And a lot. Now, there are some things about Whitman that uh, 20th century poets, I think, didn't like. You know, the, the upbeat, optimistic, affirmative uh, tone of much of the poetry, I don't think they particularly uh, liked or saw as applicable. Also, I don't think uh, uh, some poets uh, liked the kind of exhort, uh, <coughs> exhorted, uh, what's the word I need, exhortation, the tone of exhortation, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, didactic uh, quality of some of the poetry. I don't think 20th century poets uh, uh, often have liked that. And yet there's a great deal in his uh, poetry that, that has appealed to people, especially, you know, maybe his um, poems that make, make use of imagistic uh, techniques that 20th century poets are going to take much further than uh, uh, Whitman did. All these kinds of things uh, I tend to like. Uh, Whitman is certainly not the only poet, however, that I have uh, liked. I mean, there are other poets and other styles of poems that uh, I admire and uh, I think given, uh, you know, given what Whitman uh, did, uh, you know, back in the 19th century, I'm, uh, I'm still impressed by some of the breakthroughs that he, he made. And, uh, you know, y you have to keep in mind that uh, when Whitman came along, American uh, literature was still pretty much imitative of British literature, especially the poetry. You know, you had poets in mid-19th century America still writing about birds like cuckoos and linnets, uh, not, <laughs> not native to, you know, to this uh, continent, or writing about flora and fauna that uh, <clears throat> were familiar to British readers, uh, not so much American readers. Well, you know, Whitman changed the whole scene and, and truly started to write about American, American topography and American culture and uh, American ideas and uh, uh, you know, that, that makes him, in my book, really an interesting guy. Yeah. And at the time that he was writing, for instance, in, in free verse, I mean, uh, kind of casting off some of the, the what, what had been for such a long time, kind of the prescriptive meter and so on, was that relatively common, or was he among a rather select few poets who were no. writing in kind of a daring new style? Uh, it was not It was not at all common, Uh he was not the inventor of uh, free verse. In fact, you know, one of his uh, important models was the uh, the Bible, where you do have great passages of uh, free verse in the Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes and elsewhere. Uh, 
there were other uh, there were other people uh, in in British lit. There were a few uh, British uh, uh, poets who had uh, written some free verse uh, poems, but uh, uh, Whitman was uh, was so uh, prominent in this re- regard that he's often taken to have uh, invented free verse. But he he did not do that. But uh, he certainly he certainly introduced American poetry to this uh, style of uh, verse and. Uh, in the 20th century, free verse has become virtually the uh, the dominant style, I would say. Hmm. Do you have a favorite poem of Walt Whitman? Gee, I don't... Uh, I suppose my favorite poem would be the, the longest one, uh, Song of Myself, it's called. Uh, a poem that initially he gave no title to, and... Uh, it appeared in the first edition of Leaves of Grass in 1855. It's always been sort of the centerpiece of every subsequent edition of Leaves of Grass. When he, when he reprinted it in 1856, he gave the poem the title uh, Walt Whitman... Uh, uh, now I've forgotten the, forgotten the, forgotten the title. Po- an American poet or something of the sort. Then he, he shortened that uh, later on to Walt Whitman. And then finally, near the uh, end of his career, he changed the title of the poem to Song of Myself. It's, uh, it, it's a poem I like uh, a lot, I guess, because it, it seems to me to have the essential Whitman in it. Uh, you know, his uh, great uh, energy and uh, zest and... Uh, uh, colorfulness and uh, you know some of the most striking lines in all of his uh, poetry and some of the most famous lines in all of his poetry are contained in it for example you know he he proclaims near the end of the poem do I contradict myself very well then I contradict myself I am large I contain multitudes he says mm. um, also he has in that poem the line uh, I sound my barbaric yawp over the roofs of the world a line often taken to to mean that uh, uh, here's a new uh, a new world uh, upstart uh, democratic uh, poet who's who's going to vie with the great poets of of the past, including uh, Shakespeare. Uh, only Whitman is not going to give uh, uh, silver-tongued uh, <coughs> uh, and measured stanza. He's going to give a bar give us a barbaric uh, yawp and. Uh, so I, I think that that's probably my favorite uh, poem in Whitman. Hmm. Is there something shorter you could uh, read to finish out our program? Uh, I didn't warn you about that. No, so. uh, you didn't. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I might, uh, if I can find it uh, quickly, read you a little poem I've always uh, rather liked, although it doesn't seem necessarily characteristic I'll uh, let you uh, go looking uh, while I reiterate that uh, the book we've been talking about primarily today through the course of this interview, uh, Professor Cummings' most recent book about Walt Whitman called A Companion to uh, Walt Whitman, a uh, uh, rather imposing book uh, recently published by Blackwell Publishing uh, out of Oxford, England, uh, one of uh, three or four different books which Professor Cummings has uh, produced about this uh, uh, extraordinarily gifted and important American uh, poet uh, Walt Whitman, and it looks like you are getting close. Uh, to, I think uh, I'm getting close <laughs> to uh, 
finding this. Yes, I did find it. It's a, it's a short poem entitled, I Sit and Look Out. Um, an interesting little poem that gives you a, a glimpse of Whitman's uh, stoicism, I guess, you could say. It has to do with uh, uh, some of the uh, terrible things that go on in the uh, uh, world, his day and our own day, I guess. The title of the poem is, I Sit and Look Out. I sit and look out upon all the sorrows of the world and upon all oppression and shame. I hear secret convulsive sobs from young men at anguish with themselves, remorseful after deeds done. I see in low life the mother misused by her children, dying, neglected, gaunt, desperate. I see the wife misused by her husband. I see the treacherous seducer of young women. I mark the ranklings of jealousy and unrequited love attempted to be hid. I see these sights on the earth. I see the workings of battle, pestilence, tyranny. I see martyrs and prisoners. I observe a famine at sea. I observe the sailors casting lots who shall be killed to preserve the lives of the rest. I observe the slights and degradations cast by arrogant persons upon laborers, the poor, and upon Negroes, and the like. All these, all the meanness and agony without end, I, sitting, look out upon, see, hear, and am silent. Wow. <laughs> That's a masterwork, isn't it? It's a nice little poem. Absolutely. Uh, touching. Yeah. Professor uh, Don Cummings, professor of English at uh, the University of Wisconsin Parkside for now 36 years. I really appreciate you coming in today and, and speaking so eloquently about uh, this uh, great figure in American literature. We appreciate you joining us today on The Morning Show. My thanks to you. Well, thanks to you.